Book Fourth, Chapter One of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Fourth, Chapter One. It had all gone so fast after this that Milly uttered but the truth nearest to hand in saying to the gentleman on her right, who was, by the same token, the gentleman on her hostess's left, that she scarce even then knew where she was, the words marking her first full sense of a situation really romantic. They were already dining, she and her friend, at Lancaster Gate, and surrounded, as it seemed to her, with every English accessory though her consciousness of Mrs. Lowder's existence, and still more of her remarkable identity, had been of so recent and so sudden a birth. Susy, as she was apt to call her companion for a lighter change, had only had to wave a neat little wand for the fairy-tale to begin at once, in consequence of which Susy now glittered, for, with Mrs. Stringham's new sense of success, it came to that, in the character of a fairy godmother. Milly had almost insisted on dressing her, for the present occasion, as one, and it was no fault of the girls if the good lady hadn't now appeared in a peaked hat, a short petticoat and diamond shoe-buckles, brandishing the magic crutch. The good lady bore herself in truth not less contentedly than if these insignia had marked her work, and Milly's observation to Lord Mark had doubtless just been the result of such a light exchange of looks with her as even the great length of the table couldn't baffle. There were twenty persons between them, but this sustained passage was the sharpest sequel yet to that other comparison of views during the pause on the Swiss pass. It almost appeared to Milly that their fortune had been unduly precipitated, as if properly they were in the position of having ventured on a small joke, and found the answer out of proportion grave. She couldn't at this moment, for instance, have said whether, with her quickened perceptions, she were more enlivened or oppressed and the case might in fact have been serious, hadn't she, by good fortune, from the moment the picture loomed, quickly made up her mind that what finally most concerned her was neither to seek nor to shirk, wasn't even to wonder too much, but was to let things come as they would, since there was little enough doubt of how they would go. Lord Mark had been brought to her before dinner, not by Mrs. Lowder, but by the handsome girl, that lady's niece, who was now at the other end and on the same side as Susy, he had taken her in, and she meant presently to ask him about Miss Croy, the handsome girl, actually offered to her sight, though now in a splendid way, but for the second time. The first time had been the occasion, only three days before, of her calling at their hotel with her aunt and then making, for our other two heroines, a great impression of beauty and eminence. This impression had remained so with Milly that at present, and although her attention was aware at the same time of everything else, her eyes were mainly engaged with Kate Croy when not engaged with Susy. That wonderful creature's eyes, moreover, readily met them. She ranked now as a wonderful creature, and it seemed part of the swift prosperity of the American visitors that, so little in the original reckoning, she should yet appear conscious, charmingly, frankly conscious, of possibilities of friendship for them. Milly had easily, and, as a guest, gracefully generalized. English girls had a special strong beauty which particularly showed in evening dress, above all when, as was strikingly the case with this one, the dress itself was what it should be. That observation she had all ready for Lord Mark when they should, after a little, get round to it. She seemed even now to see that there might be a good deal they would get round to, 
the indication being that, taken up once for all with her other neighbour, their hostess would leave them much to themselves. Mrs. Lowder's other neighbour was the Bishop of Murham, a real bishop, such as Milly had never seen, with a complicated costume, a voice like an old-fashioned wind-instrument, and a face all the portrait of a prelate, while the gentleman on our young lady's left, a gentleman thick-necked, large, and literal, who looked straight before him, and as if he were not to be diverted by vain words from that pursuit, clearly counted as an offset to the possession of Lord Mark. As Milly made out these things, with a shade of exhilaration at the way she already fell in, she saw how she was justified of her plea for people and her love of life. It wasn't then, as the prospect seemed to show, so difficult to get into the current, or to stand at any rate on the bank. It was easy to get near, if they were near, and yet the elements were different enough from any of her old elements, and positively rich and strange. She asked herself if her right-hand neighbour would understand what she meant by such a description of them should she throw it off. But another of the things to which precisely her sense was awakened was that, no, decidedly, he wouldn't. It was nevertheless by this time open to her that his line would be to be clever. And indeed, evidently, no little of the interest was going to be in the fresh reference and fresh effect both of people's cleverness and of their simplicity. She thrilled, she consciously flushed, and all to turn pale again, with the certitude—it had never been so present—that she should find herself completely involved. The very air of the place, the pitch of the occasion, had for her both so sharp a ring and so deep an undertone. The smallest things—the faces, the hands, the jewels of the women, the sound of words, especially of names across the table, the shape of the forks, the arrangement of the flowers, the attitude of the servants, the walls of the room—were all touches in a picture and denotements in a play, and they marked for her moreover her alertness of vision. She had never, she might well believe, been in such a state of vibration. Her sensibility was almost too sharp for her comfort. There were, for example, more indications than she could reduce to order in the manner of the friendly niece, who struck her as distinguished and interesting, as in fact surprisingly genial. This young woman's type had, visibly, other possibilities. Yet here, of its own free movement, it had already sketched a relation. Were they, Miss Croy and she, to take up the tale where their two elders had left it off so many years before? Were they to find they liked each other, and to try for themselves whether a scheme of constancy on more modern lines could be worked? She had doubted, as they came to England, of Maud Manningham, had believed her a broken reed and a vague resource, had seen their dependence on her as a state of mind that would have been shamefully silly so far as it was dependence, had they wished to do anything so inane as get into society. To have made their pilgrimage all for the sake of such society as Mrs. Lowder might have in reserve for them, that didn't bear thinking of at all, and she herself had quite chosen her course for curiosity about other matters. She would have described this curiosity as a desire to see the places she had read about, and that description of her motive she was prepared to give her neighbour even though, as a consequence of it, he should find how little she had read. It was almost at present as if her poor prevision had been rebuked by the majesty—she could scarcely call it less—of the event, or at all events by the commanding character of the two figures—she could scarcely call that less either—mainly presented. Mrs. Lowder and her niece, however dissimilar, had at least in common that each was a great reality. That was true primarily of the aunt, so true that Milly wondered how her own companion had arrived in other years at so odd an alliance. 
yet she none the less felt Mrs. Lowder as a person of whom the mind might in two or three days roughly make the circuit. She would sit there, massive at least, while one attempted it, whereas Miss Croy, the handsome girl, would indulge in incalculable movements that might interfere with one's tour. She was the amusing resisting ominous fact, none the less, and each other person and thing was just such a fact, and it served them right, no doubt, the pair of them, for having rushed into their adventure. Lord Mark's intelligence, meanwhile, however, had met her own quite sufficiently to enable him to tell her how little he could clear up her situation. He explained, for that matter, or at least he hinted, that there was no such thing to-day in London as saying where any one was. Every one was everywhere, nobody was anywhere. He should be put to it, yes, frankly, to give a name of any sort or kind to their hostess's set. Was it a set at all, or wasn't it? And were there not really no such things as sets in the place any more? Was there anything but the groping and pawing, that of the vague billows of some great greasy sea in mid-channel, of masses of bewildered people trying to get they didn't know what or where? He threw out the question, which seemed large. Milly felt that at the end of five minutes he had thrown out a great many, though he followed none more than a step or two. Perhaps he would prove suggestive, but he helped her as yet to no discriminations. He spoke as if he had given them up from too much knowledge. He was thus at the opposite extreme from herself, but as a consequence of it, also wandering and lost, and he was furthermore, for all his temporary incoherence, to which she guessed there would be some key, as packed a concretion as either Mrs. Lowder or Kate. The only light in which he placed the former of these ladies was that of an extraordinary woman, a most extraordinary woman, and, the more extraordinary the more one knows her, while of the latter he said nothing for the moment, but that she was tremendously, yes, tremendously good-looking. It was some time, she thought, before his talk showed his cleverness, and yet each minute she believed in that mystery more, quite apart from what her hostess had told her on first naming him. Perhaps he was one of the cases she had heard of at home, those characteristic cases of people in England, who concealed their play of mind so much more than they advertised it. Even Mr. Densher a little did that. And what made Lord Mark, at any rate, so real either, when this was a trick he had apparently so mastered? His type somehow, as by a life, a need, an intention of its own, took all care for vividness off his hands. That was enough. It was difficult to guess his age whether he were a young man who looked old, or an old man who looked young. It seemed to prove nothing, as against other things, that he was bald, and, as might have been said, slightly stale, or more delicately, perhaps, dry. There was such a fine little fidget of preoccupied life in him, and his eyes, at moments, though it was an appearance they could suddenly lose, were as candid and clear as those of a pleasant boy very neat, very light, and so fair that there was little other indication of his moustache than his constantly feeling it, which was again boyish. He would have affected her as the most intellectual person present if he had not affected her as the most frivolous. The latter quality was rather in his look than in anything else, though he constantly wore his double eyeglass, which was much more Bostonian and thoughtful. The idea of his frivolity had, no doubt, to do with his personal designation, which represented, as yet for our young woman a little confusedly, a connection with an historic patriciate, a class that in turn, also confusedly, represented an affinity with a social element she had never heard otherwise described then as fashion. The supreme social element in New York had never known itself, but as reduced to that category, 
and though Milly was aware that, as applied to a territorial and political aristocracy, the label was probably too simple, she had for the time none other at hand. She presently, it is true, enriched her idea with the perception that her interlocutor was indifferent. Yet this, indifferent as aristocracies notoriously were, saw her but little further, inasmuch as she felt that, in the first place, he would rather get on with her than not, and in the second was only thinking of too many matters of his own. If he kept her in view on the one hand, and kept so much else on the other, the way he crumbed up his bread was a proof, why did he hover before her as a potentially insolent noble? She couldn't have answered the question, and it was precisely one of those that swarmed. They were complicated, she might fairly have said, by his visibly knowing, having known from afar off, that she was a stranger and an American, and by his none the less making no more of it than if she and her like were the chief of his diet. He took her kindly enough, but imperturbably, irreclaimably, for granted, and it wouldn't in the least help that she herself knew him, as quickly, for having been in her country and threshed it out. There would be nothing for her to explain or attenuate or brag about. She could neither escape nor prevail by her strangeness. He would have, for that matter, on such a subject, more to tell her than to learn from her. She might learn from him why she was so different from the handsome girl, which she didn't know, being merely able to feel it, or at any rate might learn from him why the handsome girl was so different from her. On these lines, however, they would move later. The lines immediately laid down were, in spite of his vagueness for his own convenience, definite enough. She was already, he observed to her, thinking what she should say on her other side, which was what Americans were always doing. She needn't in conscience say anything at all. But Americans never knew that, nor ever, poor creatures, yes, she had interposed the poor creatures, what not to do. The burdens they took on, the things positively they made an affair of, this easy and after all friendly jibe at her race was really for her, on her new friend's part, the note of personal recognition so far as she required it, and she gave him a prompt and conscious example of morbid anxiety, by insisting that her desire to be herself lovely all round, was justly founded on the lovely way Mrs. Lowder had met her. He was directly interested in that and it was not till afterward she fully knew how much more information about their friend he had taken than given. Here again, for instance, was a characteristic note. She had, on the spot, with her first plunge into the obscure depths of a society constituted from far back, encountered the interesting phenomenon of complicated, a possibly sinister motive. However, Maud Manningham—her name, even in her presence, somehow still fed the fancy—had, all the same, been lovely and one was going to meet her now quite as far on as one had oneself been met. She had been with them at their hotel—they were a pair—before even they had supposed she could have got their letter. Of course, indeed, they had written in advance, but they had followed that up very fast. She had thus engaged them to dine but two days later, and on the morrow again, without waiting for a return visit, without waiting for anything, she had called with her niece. It was as if she really cared for them, and it was magnificent fidelity. Fidelity to Mrs. Stringham, her own companion and Mrs. Lowder's former schoolmate, the lady with the charming face and the rather high dress down there at the end. Lord Mark took in through his nippers these balanced attributes of Susie. But isn't Mrs. Stringham's fidelity then equally magnificent? Well, it's a beautiful sentiment, but it isn't as if she had anything to give. Hasn't she got you? Lord Mark asked without excessive delay. Me? To give Mrs. Lowder? Milly had clearly not yet seen herself in the light of such an offering. Oh, I'm a rather poor present, and I don't feel as if, even at that, I had as yet quite been given. You've been shown, 
and if our friend has jumped at you it comes to the same thing. He made his jokes, Lord Mark, without amusement for himself, yet it wasn't that he was grim. To be seen you must recognise, is, for you, to be jumped at, and if it's a question of being shown, here you are again. Only it has now been taken out of your friend's hands, it's Mrs. Lowder already who's getting the benefit. Look round the table, and you'll make out, I think, that you're being, from top to bottom, jumped at." "'Well, then,' said Milly, "'I seem also to feel that I like it better than being made fun of.' It was one of the things she afterwards saw—Milly was for ever seeing things afterwards—that her companion had here had some way of his own, quite unlike any one else's, of assuring her of his consideration. She wondered how he had done it, for he had neither apologised nor protested. She said to herself at any rate that he had led her on, and what was most odd was the question by which he had done so. "'Does she know much about you?' "'No, she just likes us.' Even for this his travelled lordship, seasoned and saturated, had no laugh. "'I mean you, particularly. Has that lady with the charming face, which is charming, told her?' Milly cast about. "'Told her what?' "'Everything.' This, with the way he dropped it, again considerably moved her, made her feel for a moment that as a matter of course she was a subject for disclosures. But she quickly found her answer. Oh, as for that, you must ask her. Your clever companion. Mrs. Lowder. He replied to this that their hostess was a person with whom there were certain liberties one never took, but that he was none the less fairly upheld inasmuch as she was for the most part kind to him, and as, should he be very good for a while, she would probably herself tell him. And I shall have at any rate, in the meantime, the interest of seeing what she does with you. That will teach me more or less, you see, how much she knows." Milly followed this. It was lucid, but it suggested something apart. "'How much does she know about you?' "'Nothing,' said Lord Mark serenely. "'But that doesn't matter, for what she does with me.' And then, as to anticipate Milly's question about the nature of such doing, this, for instance, turning me straight on for you. The girl thought, and you mean she wouldn't if she didn't know? He met it as if it were really a point. No, I believe, to do her justice, she still would, so you can be easy. Milly had the next instant then acted on the permission. Because you're even at the worst the best thing she has. With this he was at last amused. I was till you came. You're the best now." It was strange his words should have given her the sense of his knowing, but it was positive that they did so, and to the extent of making her believe them, though still with wonder, that really from this first of their meetings was what was most to abide with her. She accepted almost helplessly, she surrendered so to the inevitable in it, being the sort of thing, as he might have said, that he at least thoroughly believed he had, in going about, seen enough of for all practical purposes. Her submission was naturally, moreover, not to be impaired by her learning later on that he had paid at short intervals, though at a time apparently just previous to her own emergence from the obscurity of extreme youth, three separate visits to New York, where his nameable friends and his contrasted contacts had been numerous. His impression, his recollection of the whole mixed quantity, was still visibly rich. It had helped him to place her and she was more and more sharply conscious of having, as with the door sharply slammed upon her and the guard's hand raised in signal to the train, been popped into the compartment in which she was to travel for him. It was a use of her that many a girl would have been doubtless quick to resent, and the kind of mind that thus, in our young lady, 
made all for mere seeing and taking, is precisely one of the charms of our subject. Milly had practically just learned from him, had made out, as it were, from her rumbling compartment, that he gave her the highest place among their friends' actual properties. She was a success, that was what it came to, he presently assured her, and this was what it was to be a success. It always happened before one could know it. One's ignorance was, in fact, often the greatest part of it. "'You haven't had time yet,' he said. "'This is nothing. But you'll see. You'll see everything. You can, you know, everything you dream of.' He made her more and more wonder. She almost felt as if he were showing her visions while he spoke. And strangely enough, though it was visions that had drawn her on, she hadn't had them in connection, that is, in such preliminary and necessary connection, with such a face as Lord Mark's, such eyes and such a voice, such a tone and such a manner. He had for an instant the effect of making her ask herself if she were, after all, going to be afraid. So distinct was it for fifty seconds that a fear passed over her. There they were again, yes, certainly. Susie's overture to Mrs. Lowder had been their joke, but they had pressed in that gaiety an electric bell that continued to sound. Positively while she sat there she had the loud rattle in her ears, and she wondered during these moments why the others didn't hear it. They didn't stare, they didn't smile, and the fear in her that I speak of was but her own desire to stop it. That dropped, however, as if the alarm itself had ceased. She seemed to have seen in a quick throw tempered glare that there were two courses for her, one to leave London again the first thing in the morning, the other to do nothing at all. Well, she would do nothing at all. She was already doing it. More than that, she had already done it, and her chance was gone. She gave herself up. She had the strangest sense on the spot of so deciding, for she had turned a corner before she went on again with Lord Mark inexpressive but intensely significant, he met as no one else could have done the very question she had suddenly put to Mrs. Stringham on the Brunig. Should she have it, whatever she did have, that question had been for long. Ah, so possibly not, her neighbour appeared to reply. Therefore, don't you see, I'm the way. It was vivid that he might be, in spite of his absence of flourish, the way being doubtless just in that absence. The handsome girl, whom she didn't lose sight of, and who, she felt, kept her also in view. Mrs. Lowder's striking niece would perhaps be the way as well, for in her too was the absence of flourish, though she had little else, so far as one could tell, in common with Lord Mark. Yet how indeed could one tell? What did one understand, and of what was one, for that matter, provisionally conscious, but of their being somehow together in what they represented? Kate Croy, fine but friendly, looked over at her as really with a guess at Lord Mark's effect on her. If she could guess this effect, what then did she know about it, and in what degree had she felt it herself? Did that represent, as between them, anything particular, and should she have to count with them as duplicating, as intensifying by a mutual intelligence, the relation into which she was sinking? Nothing was so odd as that she should have to recognize so quickly, in each of these glimpses of an instant, the various signs of a relation. And this anomaly itself, had she had more time to give to it, might well, might almost terribly have suggested to her that her doom was to live fast. It was queerly a question of the short run, and the consciousness proportionately crowded. These were immense excursions for the spirit of a young person at Mrs. Lowder's mere dinner-party. But what was so significant and so admonitory as the fact of their being possible? What could they have been but just a part, already, of the crowded consciousness? And it was just a part likewise that while plates were changed, and dishes presented, and periods in the banquet marked, 
while appearances insisted and phenomena multiplied and words reached her from here and there like plashes of a slow thick tide while Mrs. Lowder grew somehow more stout and more instituted, and Susie, at her distance and in comparison more thinly improvised and more different—different, that is, from every one and everything—it was just a part that while this process went forward, our young lady alighted, came back, taking up her destiny again as if she had been able by a wave or two of her wings to displace herself briefly in sight of an alternative to it. Whatever it was, it had showed in this brief interval as better than the alternative, and it now presented itself altogether in the image and in the place in which she had left it. The image was that of her being, as Lord Mark had declared, a success. This depended more or less, of course, on his idea of the thing, into which at present, however, she wouldn't go. But renewing soon, she had asked him what he meant then that Mrs. Lowder would do with her, and he had replied that this might safely be left. "'She'll get back,' he pleasantly said her money. He could say it, too, which was singular, without affecting her either as vulgar or as nasty, and he soon explained himself by adding, "'Nobody here, you know, does anything for nothing.' "'Ah, if you mean that we shall reward her as hard as ever we can, nothing is more certain. But she's an idealist,' Milly continued, "'and idealists in the long run, I think, don't feel that they lose.' Lord Mark seemed within the limits of his enthusiasm to find this charming. Ah, she strikes you as an idealist. She idealizes us, my friend and me, absolutely. She sees us in a light, said Milly. That's all I've got to hold on by, so don't deprive me of it. I wouldn't think of such a thing for the world. But do you suppose, he continued as if it were suddenly important for him, do you suppose she sees me in a light? She neglected his question for a little, partly because her attention attached itself more and more to the handsome girl partly because, placed so near the hostess, she wished not to show as discussing her too freely. Mrs. Lowder, it was true, steering in the other quarter a course in which she called at subject as if they were islets in an archipelago, continued to allow them their ease, and Kate Croy at the same time steadily revealed herself as interesting. Milly, in fact, found of a sudden her ease, found it all as she bethought herself that what Mrs. Lowder was really arranging for was a report on her quality, and as perhaps might be said, her value from Lord Mark. She wished him, the wonderful lady, to have no pretext for not knowing what he thought of Miss Thiel. Why his judgment so mattered remained to be seen, but it was this divination that in any case now determined Milly's rejoinder. No, she knows you, she has probably reason to, and you all here know each other, I see that, so far as you know anything. You know what you're used to, and it's your being used to it, that and that only, that makes you. But there are things you don't know. He took it in as if it might fairly, to do him justice, be a point. Things that I don't, with all the pains I take, and the way I've run about the world to leave nothing unlearned. Milly thought, and it was perhaps the very truth of his claim, its not being negligible, that sharpened her impatience and thereby her wit. You're blasé, but you're not enlightened. You're familiar with everything, but conscious really of nothing. What I mean is that you've no imagination. Lord Mark at this threw back his head, ranging with his eyes the opposite side of the room and showing himself at last so much more flagrantly diverted that it fairly attracted their hostess's notice. Mrs. Lowder, however, only smiled on Milly for a sign that something racy was what she had expected, and resumed with a splash of her screw, her cruise among the islands. "'Oh, I've heard that,' the young man replied, "'before.' "'There it is, then.' You've heard everything before. You've heard me, of course, before, in my country often enough. 
Oh, never too often, he protested. I'm sure I hope I shall still hear you again and again. But what good, then, has it done you? The girl went on, as if now frankly to amuse him. Oh, you'll see when you know me. But most assuredly I shall never know you. Then that will be exactly, he laughed, the good. If it established thus that they couldn't or wouldn't mix, why did Milly none the less feel through it a perverse quickening of the relation to which she had been in spite of herself appointed? What queer consequence of their not mixing than their talking, for it was what they had arrived at, almost intimately? She wished to get away from him, or indeed much rather away from herself so far as she was present to him. She saw already, wonderful creature after all, herself too, that there would be a good deal more of him to come for her and that the special sign of their intercourse would be to keep herself out of the question. Everything else might come in, only never that, and with such an arrangement they would perhaps even go far. This, in fact, might quite have begun on the spot with her returning again to the topic of the handsome girl. If she was to keep herself out, she could naturally best do so by putting in somebody else. She accordingly put in Kate Croy, being ready to that extent, as she was not at all afraid for her, to sacrifice her if necessary. Lord Mark himself, for that matter, had made it easy by saying a little while before that no one among them did anything for nothing. What, then, she was aware of being abrupt, does Miss Croy, if she's so interested, do it for? What has she to gain by her lovely welcome? Look at her now! Milly broke out with characteristic freedom of praise, though pulling herself up also with a compunctious, oh, as the direction thus given to their eyes happened to coincide with the turn of Kate's face to them. All she had meant to do was to insist that this face was fine, but what she had in fact done was to renew again her effect of showing herself to its possessor, as conjoined with Lord Mark for some interested view of it. He had, however, promptly met her question. To gain? Why your acquaintance? Well, what's my acquaintance to her? She can care for me, she must feel that, only by being sorry for me. And that's why she's lovely, to be already willing to take the trouble to be. It's the height of the disinterested." There were more things in this than one that Lord Mark might have taken up, but in a minute he had made his choice. "'Ah, then I'm nowhere, for I'm afraid I'm not sorry for you in the least. What do you make, then,' he asked, "'of your success?' "'Why, just the great reason of all. It's just because our friend there sees it that she pities me. She understands,' Milly said. "'She's better than any of you. She's beautiful.' He appeared struck with this at last, with the point the girl made of it, to which she came back even after a diversion created by a dish presented between them. "'Beautiful in character, I see. Is she so? You must tell me about her.' Milly wondered. "'But haven't you known her longer than I? Haven't you seen her for yourself?' "'No. I've failed with her. It's no use. I don't make her out. And I assure you I really should like to.' His assurance had, in fact, for his companion a positive suggestion of sincerity. He affected her as now saying something he did feel, and she was the more struck with it, as she was still conscious of the failure even of curiosity he had just shown in respect to herself. She had meant something, though indeed for herself almost only, in speaking of their friend's natural pity. It had doubtless been a note of questionable taste, but it had quavered out in spite of her, and he hadn't so much as cared to inquire, why natural? Not that it wasn't really much better for her that he shouldn't. Explanations would, in truth, have taken her much too far. Only she now perceived that, in comparison, her word about this other person really drew him, and there were things in that, probably, many things, as to which she would learn more, and which glimmered there already as part and parcel of that larger, real, with which, in her new situation, she was to be beguiled. 
It was in fact at the very moment, this element, not absent from what Lord Mark was further saying. So you're wrong, you see, as to our knowing all about each other. There are cases where we break down. I at any rate give her up. Up, that is, to you. You must do her for me. Tell me, I mean, when you know more. You'll notice, he pleasantly wound up, that I've confidence in you." "'Why shouldn't you have?' Milly asked, observing in this, as she thought, a fine, though for such a man surprisingly artless, fatuity. It was as if there might have been a question of her falsifying for the sake of her own show—that is, of the failure of her honesty to be proof against her desire to keep well with him herself. She didn't, none the less, otherwise protest against his remark. There was something else she was occupied in seeing. It was the handsome girl alone, one of his own species and his own society, who had made him feel uncertain. Of his certainties about a mere little American, a cheap exotic, imported almost wholesale, and whose habitat, with its conditions of climate, growth and cultivation, its immense profusion but its few varieties and thin development, he was perfectly satisfied. The marvel was, too, that Milly understood his satisfaction, feeling she expressed the truth in presently saying, "'Of course, I make out that she must be difficult, just as I see that I myself must be easy.' And that was what, for all the rest of this occasion, remained with her, as the most interesting thing that could remain. She was more and more content herself to be easy. She would have been resigned, even had it been brought straighter home to her, to passing for a cheap exotic. Provisionally, at any rate, that protected her wish to keep herself, with Lord Mark, in abeyance. They had all affected her as inevitably knowing each other, and if the handsome girl's place among them was something even their initiation couldn't deal with, why then, she would indeed be a quantity. End of Book Fourth, Chapter One